I forgot there's an airport 10 minutes away. So. I'm Sean. And I'm Lisa. We're a married couple and we like to talk about The, the Beach, Beach Boys. Boys. Hi everybody, Sean here, speaking on behalf of Lisa and myself, of course. What we were originally thinking of doing for the official first episode, episode one, was some kind of review of the Feel Flows box set. There's just um, one eensy little problem, though. Um, we are so overwhelmed by it that we need some time to process things. We are hoping to record uh, in a few days. In the meantime, I figured what would be possibly a good interim would be, hey, since this is a new Beach Boys podcast, why not have an episode in which Lisa and I are talking about how we first became fans? So that's exactly what this is. Now, I will give you a little heads up about the quality of this recording. Um, as you might remember, our introductory episode, we recorded literally on the beach in San Diego when we were on vacation in April of this year. Um, by the way, those of you listening in the distant future, uh, that's April of 2021. Now, believe me, we do have home equipment, as you can tell by the quality of this recording, but we did record a few episodes on location, as it were, including this one. This was recorded at an inn in New Buffalo, Michigan, when we were away for an extended weekend back in August of 2020. And in fact, this was actually recorded for a different podcast, but I decided to cannibalize it and use it for this instead. Something else I wanted to bring up, I just wanted to direct your attention to our official website, tunex.fab4it.com, and fab4it is spelled F-A-B, and then the number four, and then I-T. In addition to show notes, uh, including relevant videos, documentation, uh, links to buy books, or whatever else you might have from episode to episode, there are also a couple of other features. One thing that is active right now is a This Date in Beach Boys history. When you go to our homepage, you'll see a little uh, kind of teal-colored box with something that happened on this current day in history. Uh, just giving you a fair warning, though, uh, I haven't really uh, entered much information right now, so there might not be anything depending on the day. One thing I did was uh, I went on Wikipedia and went through the entire Beach Boys album discography and plugged in the album release dates, and I plugged in the Beach Boys birthdays and things like that. So it's very rudimentary right now, but I will be building it up as time goes on. Also, in the near future, there will be some uh, resources, if you will. Those of you who've been in the Beach Boys online community for, say, 20 years or more might remember a document I had on an older iteration of my website called Candy Apple P. I know I have that somewhere on a hard drive in this house. If not, then I'm sure it's archived somewhere. I will get that up there. I'm also planning to have a list of all the different recording variations you find on different releases of songs, such as three or more different versions of Fun Fun Fun, two different versions of It's Okay, etc. So keep an eye on our space on tunex.fab4it.com, which, by the way, redirects to my old URL, banana-and-louie.org. 
I will shut up now and let you uh, eavesdrop on our little conversation, answering the question, how and or when did you get to be a fan? So it was 1974. I was not quite yet three years old. And Capitol Records put out a greatest hits package called Endless Summer. From what I understand, Capitol still had the rights to release Beach Boys music up through 1965. Yeah, because the Beach Boys weren't on Capitol at that point. Yeah, the Beach Boys were on Warner Reprise. But Capitol still had the right to release music. And from what I gather at that time, there was a lot of nostalgia coming back in. That's the year Happy Days started. American Graffiti had been a big hit the year before. So people were getting tired of Vietnam, the protests, all these things going on, all these things, people being pissed off about everything, the economy sucked. And people were just kind of looking back to, I would never say a simpler time. I don't think the 50s were simple at all, but... Well, they were if you were white. <laughs> well, yeah, but even if you were white, I don't think they were all Not that true. simple. But they... They wanted to capitalize on this nostalgia and people just kind of wanting to have fun again and not get all bent out of shape about things. The bicentennial was on the horizon. There was just a move, I think, towards positivity and happiness. And a brilliant thing that Capital did is around that time, it was a big deal to sell records on television. Like the year before, my father bought this box set of it was all like the big hits of the late 1950s. It was a pink box set. If you've been to any record show or yard sale, you have seen this box set. It had all these hits from when my dad was in high school and he loved that box set. So they were pitching this endless summer package on TV really hard, playing snippets of the songs and making it really easy to buy this on two LPs, eight track or maybe even cassette. I don't know if they were selling the cassette then. So my dad bought the eight track probably for his car because I don't think we had an eight track player in the house yet. And he played the living daylights out of that thing. Beach Boys everywhere. My dad really loved at least the Beach Boys hits because when he came back from the Navy in 1964, he heard... I get around and he heard, I want to hold your hand. And I get around, spoke to a former greaser like him. So like, you know, a song about cars and girls and just, it just played into everything my dad loved from when he was young. So I heard that tape all the time, knew the songs by heart by the time I was four, maybe. I knew what a little deuce coupe was. I knew what a four-speed dual quad pause attraction 409, even though 409 wasn't on that tape. It was, oh, that's right. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was on Spirit of but, America. I mean, I knew, I my, I remember my dad explaining shutdown to me, explaining about, you know, that it was a drag race and why a Stingray was going to beat a super stock Dodge hands down. I knew all this stuff when I was just a little tiny kid. I still don't know that stuff. <laughs> so... That was just a very important, not just part of my childhood, but kind of a bonding with my dad. So that is where it started when I was not even quite yet three years old. 
And keep in mind, I had no idea what the Beach Boys' names were. I didn't know what they looked like because if you look at the drawing, the little cartoony oh, cover of Endless Summer, first of all, the 8-track label only has what is the front cover of the LP, which only has, what, three faces? So. Like, and, you know, it's all they're all hairy and they're all kind of hiding in these leaves. And it's like, I had no idea. I, I wouldn't have known a Beach Boy if I ran into him on the street. So <laughs> I didn't even know who these guys were. I just know I liked what I heard. Well, having said that, um, I don't know what year it was. I was old enough to remember this happening, obviously, but I was a little, little kid. Could have been 1977. In fact, it probably, it probably was 77, maybe even possibly theoretically seven, like late 76, when I was like two years old. Both of my parents were, were at work, and when they both had to work at the same time, they'd usually drop me off at the next-door neighbor's house, and Mrs. Marillat would babysit me. One time when I was over there, she said, I want to listen to some music. And she pulled out this record, and of course, you know, I'm too young to read or anything, but I, re- I recognized the label. It was a reddish-orange tomato soup-colored label with the little capital lo- uh, gold-type logo on the bottom of the label. So I thought, oh, that must be Dad's Glenn Campbell album that he plays all the time. Darling, I could never be ashamed of you. So she puts the record on, and I hear, round, round, getting round, and I was like, ugh, what the hell is this crap? I'm guessing it was Endless Summer, because of course, that sold maddeningly high. It was a number one selling record. Two summers in a row. Yeah. Because it was a number one hit in the summer of 1974, and then they did another promotional push for it in the summer of 1975. I don't think it went to number one again, but it did sell very well. As did Spirit of America, the follow-up. that 75 or 76? That was 75, I think. Okay. I think. But I did enough research to know that the record that Mrs. Marillot had to have put on the turntable was one of the two discs of Endless Summer because one of the sides starts with I Get Around or All Summer Long. It's more than likely that she was playing uh, Endless Summer, given the time. Having said that, just over the years, I would hear other things in various places, like I'd hear Surfing USA or Fun, 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 and it didn't bother me. I Get Around always bothered me to this day. (laughs) To this day. To this day, I can't stand that song. But probably starting around, okay, 1986, just like any, anybody else my age, well, I'm the only person I knew like this, was really getting into the monkeys. I had stopped listening to current music because like, current music was really boring me. It all sounded the same to me. It was all this synthesized crap, and I was just tired of it. And I heard that... I saw that commercial for that Monkees compilation on Silver Eagle Records. I liked the music, and for about a year, I was listening to literally nothing but the Monkees. And I was getting kind of tired of it, so I gave the Beatles a shot. And I got hooked on the Beatles. And for probably about two years, I was listening to nothing but the Beatles and nothing but the Monkees. And I was getting burnt out with just those two. And I was like, I gotta try something else. And something occurred to me is that, except for I Get Around... Whenever I heard a Beach Boys song on the radio or or whatever, I wouldn't change the station or turn it off. So I decided I'm going to try the Beach Boys just for the hell of it. So I went to the public library 
and I picked up three, no, four Beach Boys albums, I think. There was uh, Summer Dream, no, wait, Sunshine Dream, which was basically the third in the series that started with Endless Summer. It had all the 1966 stuff in, uh, like, basically the late 60s Beach Boys stuff on it. Uh, two records set. There was uh, 20 Golden Greats, Best of the Beach Boys Volume 2, and I don't remember what the fourth one was. Actually, it might have only been those three, now that I think about it. It might, might have thrown me off because there are actually four records total. But when I got those records home, the first thing that I did was I plopped uh, Best of the Beach Boys Volume 2, the Capital Starline label with a white giant white star in the middle of it with a red border on it, and I heard Don't Worry Baby. It was the first time I ever remember hearing that song. Mm. Except for a couple of little drum beats, the very first thing you hear on Don't Worry Baby is this explosion of five-part harmony. And it's like, holy crap, I literally almost fell on my ass when I heard that. I was like, you are kidding me. And from what we've heard from other fans, you are by far not the only one who had that reaction to hearing don't worry baby for the first time i didn't pay attention to anything else it was it was just the music that just was like oh my god are you how Mm -hmm. how is this possible we've asked ourselves that a lot yeah and of course the the interesting thing is i i think it was rolling an article in rolling stone i think yeah i think it was a rolling stone article that was talking about like the hundred greatest singles of, of the rock and roll era and one of them was i get around back with don't worry baby and they had a quote from Brian Wilson about it. And he was saying how Don't Worry Baby was probably the easiest song he ever recorded. Because it was, by that time, it was so, like, they had their technique down. He was able to mic everybody exactly how he wanted. And it was like, bam, done. And I was like, how is it possible that this was easy to record? Well, kind of my knock on my ass moment came a couple years later after... I totally became immersed in Endless Summer. Okay, so we're still talking like back in the 70s. Yeah. Well, not really the the 70s. Through the 70s, listened to Endless Summer all the time because my dad, anytime we got another 8-track deck, like he uh, wired a deck for my mother's car. You know, my dad was an engineer, so he could... Really? What railroad? Shut up. The Bell Labs Railroad. Jesus. So he could wire anything. So he had a stereo in his garage that he built. He put like really great stereo systems in his car, my mother's car. And we finally did get an eight track deck in the house. So every deck had its own copy of Saturday Night Fever, Grease, Beach Boys Endless Summer, and I think the American Graffiti soundtrack. Those were my dad's like go-to music things ever. Anytime we went up to Massachusetts, where my dad is from, uh, to visit our relatives, that's a six-hour trip one way, and it's an awful six-hour trip. We were listening to those tapes. And sometime, it was probably about 19... I I don't remember exactly. I kind of put it as 1982, because I think it was definitely around when I was in fifth grade. And my dad hands me a tape... I think he had, um, somebody at work was getting rid of a bunch of tapes. So my dad took them because he's like, yeah, we still listen to eight tracks. And there was a tape that my dad hands me. He says, I want you to understand that 
good vibrations is more than just the sun-kissed jingle because around 1980 sun-kissed orange soda it either had just come out or it was um, a product that they were just doing a big promotion for i don't remember but i do remember the commercial i remember it where too. they reworked the, the words to good vibrations to make it about you know sun-kissed orange soda taste sensation here here's a clip I'm like, okay, I don't remember if I had ever heard the song Good Vibrations. I really don't know. Oh, I definitely heard it by then. I mean, most of my Beach Boys knowledge came from the Endless Summer tape. And at the time, most of the radio that we listened to was WKTU Disco 92 oh, out of New York City, uh, where Jay Thomas, who was uh, went on mm. to be an actor on uh, several shows... And it was also the guy who always threw the football at the Christmas tree with David Letterman every year. And he just passed away not too long ago, a couple yeah. years ago. But Jay Thomas was the lead morning DJ on that station. So we, we always listened to that. My parents listened to a lot of top 40 radio, current radio. So I wasn't really exposed to like oldies radio. Yeah. So I wasn't hearing other Beach Boys songs on the radio. Maybe I heard it in other places, I don't know. So I take the tape, first song on there is Good Vibrations, okay. Second song was Girl Don't Tell Me, which I already knew from Endless Summer. Ah. Then it clicks to the second channel, Heroes and Villains. Ooh. Okay? That is some serious stuff right there. Then followed by Darlin'. Ooh. Okay. I was like, mm. This is a weird playlist so far, but it's a int very interesting click, selection. Click to channel three. 409, which I hadn't heard before, but you know, since it's in such the same vein as Shut Down and Little Deuce yeah. Coop, it was still very familiar. And I didn't know at the time that 409 really predated a lot of those other car songs that I was familiar with. Then the little girl I once knew... Followed by She Knows Me Too Well. Hmm. But of course, because people did stupid things with 8-track tapes back then, She Knows Me Too Well was split between Channel 3 and Channel 4. So during the little instrumental bridge, it actually faded out, clicked to Channel 4, and then it comes back in. I do not understand why they <laughs> did that on 8-tracks. Because I'm sure I mentioned this to you before, but... One time, I actually recorded stuff to an eight-track. You know what happens when the channel changes? You it just, just it, it, it just goes keeps, click. It just the music does not. There, there's maybe a tiny, tiny like well, yeah, microsecond of like fade out for a second, but there's no reason to fade it out. It's the just only a little, thing the channel changer is just a little metal piece yeah. on the tape, and it's like the size of like a pencil eraser. So it's not like the tape doesn't disappear or anything. But anyway... It would have played right through, but no. No. Record companies had to do that I didn't hear thing. that song uninterrupted until 1993. Oh my goodness. So anyway, She Knows Me Too Well comes fading back in. And fortunately, at least it was during the instrumental part, so, you know, the amazing vocals on it weren't toyed with. And then the next song... 
God only knows. Oh. Which was probably kind of my don't worry baby moment. I mean, 10 years old, I still remember listening to that on yet another 8-track player that we had down in our family room, sitting on this like kind of psychedelic-y 70s red and black carpet. I mean, that song, I just thought to myself, this is the greatest song ever, and I'm never going to hear anything better than it. And all these years later, that has not changed. Wow. I mean, that song is just like it is the alpha and the omega of everything and then after that dance 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 so here you had this collection of songs only one of them i knew already i mean i'm surprised i did not wear that tape into disintegration i played that tape so much over the next i don't know how many years i mean that music tore the top off my head at 10 years old. And I mean, the kind of the, the awful thing about it is I couldn't talk to anybody about it. I mean, even like my dad who really liked, my dad liked the Beach Boys and liked listening to their music, but my dad was not a... Not a fan. Well, I've, I've learned in my life that in order to really be a fan, you have to have that, you have to have a mentality for it. There are fan people and there are not fan people. And I'm not talking like obsessive stalker wacko people. I'm just talking the ability to get really immersed in a form of entertainment, whether it's, you know, TV, movies, music, whatever, and have like connections with it where it really has meaning in your life. Like whether it makes you feel better, whether it gives you inspiration or helps you connect to other people. Because I, I know that there are people who are terribly shy, but having, like I read about this in terms of like Star Trek fans, that there are people who were horribly shy in their personal life, but having a deep love of Star Trek and meeting other Star Trek fans at conventions helped them open up mm. and really helped them kind of break through that, that shyness and overcome some of it and go on to help their overall life. So I just think there are people who are like that and people who aren't. My dad just wasn't a fan person. And I mean, the Beach Boys did concerts every summer at the Garden State Arts Center, which was only about 20 minutes away. My dad never went to see them in concert, never even asked me if I wanted to go. Mm. He knew I loved their music, but my dad didn't like going to concerts. He didn't like crowds. He didn't really have a desire to hear live music because his, his whole thing was, I can always listen to the record. Like, he didn't like going to concerts. So I, I just couldn't find anybody that I could talk to about this stuff who wouldn't think that I was some kind of a nut. Well, until the day in 1997 when you decided to like slack off at work well, and that, browse the web. That's, we, we'll, the we'll get to that in a little bit. We will? Well, yeah. No, because my, I mean, I think the same goes for you too, but for me, the fandom kind of came in stages. It wasn't like one day, boom, I'm a Beach Boys fan. Something I started with as a young child, got more knowledge when I was about 10. A few years later, 
when I could go to the the big people library as opposed <laughs> to the children's library, the downstairs library. <laughs> I looked and they did have that dinky, stupid library in my little town. Actually did have a Beach Boys book. It was The Beach Boys by Byron Price, published mm-hmm. in, I think, around 1979. And kind of a slim book, but it was mostly about the music. And it had a lot of the song lyrics in it. Mm-hmm. And again, it only went up to a certain point. It didn't have everything to know about the Beach Boys. Yeah. And granted, I mean, at the time that I'm talking about, the Beach Boys were still putting out current music. Yep. Nobody bought it, but they still were putting out current music. But there was a lot of great stuff in that book. Uh, A lot of stories talking about songs that I hadn't heard of, but it was interesting to read about them. Now, you know the really cool thing in that book, right? Do I? The the stained glass interpretation of the vibrations. Oh, where basically it's like a different... It's kind of like each color represents a note or something. Well, yeah, there's different panels in the glass, like the size of the glass and the colors represented uh, notes and chords and measures. And I read that book. I memorized that book. I checked it out all the time. Probably had out more than anybody in the history of that little library ever. And then a couple of years later, there was a new book. Now, Ooh. keep in mind, I had I didn't know about other Beach Boys. There were other Beach Boys books. I just didn't know about them, especially because my little dinky, stupid library did not do interlibrary loan, which I know you're horrified about to this day I've, because you know how valuable that is. I wonder if they really did. They just didn't publicize it. I, yeah, I just think yeah. they didn't care. Like, they were too lazy to go get yeah. books from other places. So I didn't even know about other Beach Boys books that were out there that were pretty decent, at least for the time. There's really great Beach Boys books now, but this book came out in 1986, and I got it, I think, either as a birthday or Christmas present that year. And it's called Heroes and Villains uh, yes. by Stephen Gaines. And I thought, okay... This is the book that's going to tell me a lot more about the music and how they did stuff and all this great, wonderful stuff. Like, not. Ooh, what did you learn? What did you learn? I mean, and keep in mind, I was kind of learning at that point that celebrities weren't perfect, that <laughs> things weren't always as they seem, that people had dark sides, they had <laughs> drug problems, they had issues. Uh, Charlie Brown says it's time to turn the page. Yeah, right. I I knew that there were dark sides to a lot of celebrities. So I wasn't expecting any kind of rosy Pollyanna sort of thing. I just wanted to learn more about the music, about their inspirations, what made Mm -hmm. them write certain songs, whatever. And I open up the copy of (laughs) Heroes and Villains, you know, and it's like Dennis Wilson wakes up in a dumpster somewhere and... (laughs) Somewhere in Venice. In, in Venice Beach, California. With his jug of, finger quotes, orange juice. Yeah. And it was like, I mean, it, it was a warts and all kind of story that I we've heard Dennis, I mean, uh, Carl Wilson once comment that the author didn't even scratch the surface. Ugh. But it's just about all the terrible, horrible things in the Beach Boys background how their father beat the crap out of them and all the 
lying and deceit and infighting and affairs and drug use and all the crap. Not much about the music. Yep. Not much at all. And what and what little is in the music, he got a lot wrong. One thing to backtrack on is that another thing that I knew that the Beach Boys had a lot of issues and things was that I was aware that Dennis Wilson had died a few years earlier from drowning while on a lot of alcohol and cocaine. He was yeah, he was basically, you know, intoxicated and had traces of cocaine in his system. I mean, I still remember coming home from school and opening the mailbox. This would have been early 1984. And there was a People magazine, which I read all the time. And on the cover, Death of a Beach Boy. And a really unflattering picture picture of Dennis. He was all bloated and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it was a picture kind of from the end. Yep. But there was also a... There were some really great pictures inside with the article. Very good pictures of him. But... I was well aware that, you know, it's not like Dennis just died in a swimming accident. Which is what I always thought, because everything said, well, he drowned in 1983. It's like, oh, man, he must have been out on the boat with his friends or family or something, and he fell off or something. It's like, no, 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 no. Which I didn't know until well after I became a fan. Yeah. And I mean, the book didn't hurt my fandom, didn't hurt my interest. But it, at the time, it just made me sad that this was put out instead of the book that I wanted to right. read. And again, fortunately, years later, I found a wealth of information in a variety of sources that has given me exactly what I was looking for when I was 14. But in the 80s, that's what they wanted to put out. Yep. I mean, the Beach Boys weren't speaking much for themselves, so it was a difficult thing. But for the same holiday, like I said, either birthday or Christmas, I also got Pet Sounds Mm. on vinyl. It was um, one of the reissue, you know, a capital reissue as it had in the (laughs) top corner. But unlike other capital reissues, they didn't butcher. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that. You know, other capital reissues left out songs for some dumbass reason. But Pet Sounds was left intact. So that record alone told me far more about what I wanted to know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just kind of like how Brian Wilson himself said. I know he said it at least one time. You know, if you want to know about me, listen to the music. Yep. And it's not just the lyrics. The music itself tells oh, yeah. a story. Yep. You got to be open to it, but there's a story there too. Mm-hmm. Well, I've talked right, a lot. What was, so what was yeah? Turn. What was the question again? Um, well, we're well, talking. Uh, yeah. We're talking about how Beach Boys fandom kind of comes in phases to people. Well, okay, yeah, that's that's exactly what happened to me too. Because when I was really getting into the Beach Boys at first, it was around probably 1989, 1990. Of course, my biggest source for listening to music was the public library. I'd go and I'd get records and tapes from the library. It was either that or WCKG, which didn't really play the Beach Boys hardly at all. Hardly ever they played the Beach Boys. They played everybody else from that time, though. But what I can remember is uh, just after hearing Don't Worry Baby and just listening to those 
three or four albums I checked out from the library, I just got really into it. And the thing is, that wasn't the first time something like that had happened. I'd always been a deep diver. Like when Thriller came out, and I was a big Michael Jackson fan back in the early 80s, I wanted to hear more Michael Jackson. I wanted to hear Off the Wall, so I got a copy of Off the Wall. And when I learned that the Jackson 5, that little kid in the Jackson 5 was Michael Jackson as a kid, I was like, oh my God, I, I want to hear the Jackson 5. And I was the only one like that. Everybody else who loved Michael Jackson, they're like, why are you asking me about the Jackson 5? That's old. It's Michael Jackson. How can you not want to hear it? And people just didn't get that, that I wanted to do a deep dive. But if I hear something I like, I'm doing a freaking deep dive. And that's exactly what happened with the Beach Boys. I went to the library, and the library had a lot of their original albums on cassette on Capitol Records with the disclaimer that there were some songs left off. <laughs> so I would hear these albums incomplete. Like, for example, the um, Surfing USA album, their second album, two of the instrumentals were chopped off. So for a long time, I would listen to Surfing USA without Surf Jam and Stoked. Until I found that one of the libraries had an original pressing of Surf in USA that had those two. Rainbow label? Which brings me to this. Oh, no, no. Don't get, in, no, don't get into that no, thing. No, no. I have to. Oh, God. I have to. And I swear this is not Mandela effect because I actually said out loud when I saw this, didn't they use the Rainbow label ever? Because I knew that Capitol Records singles in the 60s were orange and yellow with kind of a little swirl, almost a spirally kind of design. And when I got that vinyl copy of Surf in USA through Interlibrary Loan, I swear to God, it had that exact same yellow and orange swirl design that the singles had. And I thought, oh, this is odd. I thought for sure it would have the black label with the rainbow edge on it and the Capitol logo on top which is what I was used to seeing on the Beatles albums that I checked out. And that's what was on the mono copy of Surfing USA that I got through Interlibrary Loan. That exact same label was also on one of the two copies of the Beach Boys Christmas album in stereo that the Joliet Library had. But I cannot find anybody else who will agree to me that that label variation existed on an album. It may have seriously been just... An anomaly. Andrew freaking Doe disagrees with me. I mean, it could have me. been literally a one-time or maybe just an error in Could have been. Could have been. Or could have been like something like, well, we ran out, so here, we'll use these, the, these yeah, templates here. exactly. It happens. It, it happens mm -hmm. in the world. So anyway, the cool thing about, if there is a cool thing about those Beach Boys albums, that you could fit three of them on a 90-minute cassette. Mm -hmm. So I would dub them to 90-minute cassettes. And... The thing about that is uh, not every Beach Boys album was butchered like that. Like Beach Boys Concert, Beach Boys Party, Pet Sounds, as you said, and the Christmas album were all fully intact. Mm -hmm. There was nothing missing. And the two songs they lopped off of the third album, Surfer Girl, you could get off of the Little Deuce Coop album. Mm -hmm. So you could put together a fully constructed Surfer Girl album. Yeah. But then again, you would then... Little Deuce Coop was incomplete still because those those missing two songs weren't anywhere. But yeah, I, I would just get any of those incomplete Beach Boys albums, and uh, and I'll tell you why they why they chopped them off. It was simply because of money, and as a result, those albums were dirt freaking cheap. I never actually bought them because I didn't want them if they weren't I didn't want to own them if they weren't complete. 
and some of them were renamed, like Summer Days and Summer Nights was renamed California Girls. Shutdown Volume 2 was renamed Fun, Fun, Fun. But, um, yeah, I was listening to those. I was just grabbing those from the library, making copies, uh, anything that they didn't have on cassette. I would go for cassette first because I didn't have a good turntable, so I wanted a good-sounding copy. And anything that I couldn't get on cassette, I would get on vinyl, uh, see if I could fill in the gaps, fill in the missing pieces, until I amassed about 95% of the music they recorded for Capitol Records between 1963 and 1969. Hmm. I hadn't yet found a copy of Surf... Oh, wait, yes, I did find Surf and, uh, Surf and Safari. And that's one that I totally agree with how they lopped it off because it doesn't have Cuckoo Clock, which is a terrible, terrible, awful yes, song. that song should be buried in a Yeah, and, and it was Brian Wilson's first lead vocal, too. Except, unless you count Luau I, I for that one line he said. I just sang. don't get it. But yeah, and I was just doing, I was going to the library getting that stuff. And 1990, Christmas Eve, mm, yeah. after not, not just dropping hints and everything, but telling my parents, I want a freaking CD player. I want a CD player. Because for one reason, the Beach Boys albums were out on CD now. And not only were they fully intact, but there were two albums on one CD with extra tracks, too. Mm-hmm. I can only get those out. Well, I didn't know they were going to put them out on cassette, too. But they were only out on CD for a while. And, you know, my, my dad was all, oh, you're, why, why do you want to get CDs for? You're going to break yourself just buying oh, those God. things. They're so expensive. Oh, Jesus. But Christmas Eve 1990, a sharp CD player under the tree for me. And three, I don't want to say three CDs because technically there are four discs among them, but there were three albums on CD in the box with them. The Beatles' White Album, Paul McCartney Tripping Live Fantastic Highlights, which was just one disc of uh, highlights plus one that wasn't on the album, one song that wasn't on the original album, uh, and of course Pet Sounds. And I listened to Pet Sounds that night, Christmas Eve night, it was the first time I truly listened to it. I did listen to it once before, thanks to an interlibrary loan. And I didn't really like it. But Christmas Eve, when I listened to Pet Sounds, in the dark, with headphones, seven years before Brian Wilson released a statement saying that that's how you're supposed to listen to it, by the way, I got it right. Ha ha ha. Well, I, I did. Well, I did too, because yeah. on that same night, about 800 miles away, I was also listening to a copy of Pet Sounds on CD that I had gotten for Christmas. The CD player was not a Christmas gift. That was actually a a present for my high school graduation that previous June. It was was actually a CD cassette boombox that might still exist somewhere. I don't know if my mother still has it, but... Yeah, it was an AM-FM radio cassette and CD player. Uh-huh. And I wanted the boom box because I liked being able to, you know, take it around. And also I wanted to take it to college with me. So I got Pet Sounds and I believe the Beach Boys Christmas album on CD uh-huh. that Christmas. But previously, when I had acquired the CD player, that's when I started buying CDs. I, I did already have one CD before that player. That was the Monkeys Missing Links Volume 2, oh. which was the first Monkeys record that I could not get the vinyl. 
Oh, they it didn't. didn't they didn't, didn't release even, on vinyl. It didn't even come out on vinyl. It no. was only on cassette and CD. Yeah. And I hated factory cassettes. Hated, hated, hated. Very rarely did I buy a factory cassette because, like you just said, why buy one cassette when you could get records and put three albums on one 90-minute tape? You know, it's a lot easier to carry around with you. So I preferred getting the records, too, because if you bought a factory cassette, inevitably your tape player would chew up the tape. Oh, yeah. And then you would be SOL because you'd have no more tape. If you bought the record, you know, your record player wasn't going to chew up your record. So well, you, it depends on how I know, what I know, right. quality your stylus. I know, but your chance of losing a record was a lot less than losing a factory cassette. So By the way, I'm sorry to interrupt, but anybody listening to this, if you if you want to have your turntable chew up your record, get a Crosley. <laughs> Definitely. I'm sorry. Please do continue. <laughs> Yeah, that's like a step above that horrible little record player I had like when I was six. I think the the needle on that was literally like a sewing needle. Hmm. But anyway, so yeah, if the if, if you used your records, if the tape got chewed up, you just make another tape. You know, that's true. Blank cassettes were cheap. You yeah. know, if you buy like the big brick of them, like twenty mm-hmm. for you know however much. Or if you have if you have my parents and you don't have money. You get even cheaper ones. Oh God, the ones that came in a bag. The, the ones that came in a bag in the wall in the Walgreens. Oh, uh, no. Impulse aisle. No. Oh, only only fifty cents for this oh, bag no, of tapes. Oh no, never buy tapes <laughs> in a bag with no case. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Oh God. Anyway, when I got the 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 CD player, one of the first CDs I got was. It was the day of my graduation party, and I called up my friend Susan Shelton, who lived right by the mall, and I said, hey, on your way over, could you stop in to uh, the record store in the mall and get me the Beach Beach Boys Endless Summer on CD, and I'll pay you back. She didn't take the money. She said, this is part of your present. So, (laughs) um, So she just gave it to me. So pretty much the first CD I played in that player was... I had gone from the 8-track of Endless Summer. I had had the cassette. That was one of the fact one of the few factory cassettes I ever bought, I think. Either that or I just took my dad's copy. Because <laughs> he had, of course, multiple copies. And then now I had the CD. And the CD, interestingly enough, had good vibrations yeah. on it. Which I, I did totally disagree with Capital doing because... They're basically rewriting history on it, but they never put Sunshine Dream out on CD. Yeah. But they figured everybody's going to buy Endless Summer. Mm-hmm. We might as well put Good Vibrations on it too, as kind yeah. of a bonus track. So you still have that exact CD, yes, don't I you? Yes, I do. Yeah. I will never part with it. Sometime after that, I know I bought two of those two furs that you just mentioned. Yeah. Was it Surfing USA? Oh no, what did I get? I know I had the one that had Surfer Girl. Was it Surfer Girl, Little Deuce Coop? So it would be, it would have been Surfer Girl and Shutdown Volume Two, okay. which chronologically is not correct because Little Deuce Coop came out after Surfer Girl, but they had to put Shutdown Volume Two, which came two albums after Surfer Girl, because Surfer Girl and Little Deuce Coop had two of the same songs, yeah. so they didn't want to repeat tracks on the same CD. But I got two of the two first, and. 
previously, like maybe a year or two before I got the CD player, I did get Spirit of America, mm. which, as we said before, was the follow-up to Endless Summer, another yeah. collection of greatest hits. Well, that one kind of went a little more into album tracks and stuff that was really good stuff but maybe not the first things you think of when you heard about the beach boys and, like, and also basically if you knew a beach boys song from the radio and it wasn't good vibrations but it wasn't on endless summer it was on little deuce coop or not it was it was spirit on of spirit america. of america but it also had the thing had things like breakaway yeah and it had graduation day yeah that was weird like it had some a, stuff a concert was, track in the middle of the it was kind of random but still a really interesting yeah. collection so it's like my beach boys education was slowly opening up and one thing that was kind of cool from around that time like near the end of high school uh, there was a record store in Belmar, New Jersey called Galaxy Records. Really great store that had some new stuff, but mostly used records. And I bought a lot of monkey stuff there. And the guy who owned it was pretty cool. And I was talking to him about, I think I had gone in there looking for the song Surf's Up. Ah. Uh. Because it was in, it was talked about in the Byron Price book, there's a whole a whole passage in the Byron Price book where Brian is explaining what the song is all about. So, I wanted to hear it. I think I had assumed, or maybe even read, that it had been a single. So I went into Galaxy looking to see if he had it in you know the 45 section, um, you know the used 45s, and the guy was like. No, it was never put out as a single. And he didn't have a copy of the Surf's Up album hmm. in the store. But he said, he said to me, well, if you buy a blank cassette, he was selling blank tapes for like 50 cents or something. He said, buy a blank tape. I will put this song on the tape for you. And you can come back in a couple of days and pick it up. So he only charged me for the tape. Yeah. Like he charged me like 50 cent, which would have been probably what he would have charged me for if he had it on a 45. And he put, he just put Surf's Up on that tape, nothing else. And I finally got to hear Surf's Up about maybe, I don't know, five or six years after reading about it. Yeah. And it was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, I got a story about that in a moment. So I was slowly building my Beach Boys knowledge. It was all leading up to 1993. Mm. <laughs> now, what happened in 1993? Well, I'll tell you what happened in 1993 for me. Because by that time, I was buying up all those capital twofers on Beach, on Beach Boys CDs, you know. Oh, by the way, um, actually, let me go back and correct. Um, all the Beach Boys capital albums from Pet Sounds and later... Those were left intact on the cheap budget reissues. They didn't take any songs off those. Mm -hmm. They didn't mess with them. But anyway, by that time, I had most but not all of the Capitol albums on those 2-on-1 CDs. And during the time that I was trying to buy those up, that's when I noticed these weird albums kind of creeping in. Like Sunflower. I was like, the hell is this? I was like, Surf's up. I've heard of that album Oh, Holland, I've heard of that. Oh, 15 Big Ones. I listened to that from, inter from an interlibrary loan. And I was like, but I'll get those later. Those must be later albums. I'll get the 60s albums first. Then I'll come back and get these to complete the collection. <laughs> Over those three years, 
between 1990 and 1993, I was getting a little bit weary of listening to these Beach Boys recordings. So basically, like most of my listening was the Beatles, the Monkees, the Beach Boys, and I was getting into the Doors at the time too. Like when I was in high school, I was a like especially junior and senior years. I was severely getting into the Doors. Of course, you were. If you were in high, if you were a high school teenager, a teenage boy. You had to get into at least one of Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, and The Doors. And Ozzy Osbourne. Oh, at, that's, least, at least for boys I knew. Maybe, maybe. but yeah. The only good Pink Floyd album is The Piper okay. at the Gates of okay. Dawn, so Don't it wasn't going to be Pink Floyd. But yeah, the, the, <laughs> so I kind of maybe forgot a little, a little bit about the Beach Boys. I was like, yeah, I can hold off for a while. I'm patient. But then in 1993, I was... Uh, I just finished my freshman year of college, summer 1993. There was a 30th anniversary box set that came out two years after their 30th anniversary (laughs) called Good Vibrations. It was five CDs. And uh, one of the attractions for that... Before you go on, I just have to say that the Beach Boys have never, ever, ever been good at accurately marking anniversaries yep like anytime you hear of you know 50th year or 25 years or 30 they're always off few exceptions like the pet sounds box set which was supposed to come out the 30th anniversary 30th anniversary it came out more than a year late it came out a year and a half late because they kept (laughs) delaying it yeah okay uh anyway uh oh yeah good vibrations and one of the big attractions for that was finally there was going to be some music from the mythical, unfinished, unreleased Smile album, which I had heard a little bit about, but it wasn't enough for me to say, yeah, I got to get that box. So I was like, yeah, whatever. Maybe, I don't know. Until my brother was listening to Steve and Gary, that is Steve Dahl and Gary Meyer, and they're big Beach Boys fans. They were listening to the box set during their show, during their their talk show on, on uh, oh, was it was it WLUP? Yeah, it was WLUP. They were listening to some bits of it, and I remember they were reading the smile titles, and they saw like, "Do you like worms?" Love to say da da, and they were cracking up over the names of those songs. Like, oh my god, we got to hear this one. Put this one on. This is this, and it turns out, of course, it was nothing like they thought it was going to yeah. be. But then they're just kind of jumping around and commenting on a few of the tracks, and they played this God Only Knows tracking session. Mm. With You can hear like Brian Wilson producing. He's uh, directing the musicians and everything. And then after a few takes, you hear this alternate version of God Only Knows. For years, I thought it was a take with Brian Wilson singing it instead of Carl, but it turns out it really is Carl just singing in kind of a different... Yeah, different know, way. Different yeah. way. And then when it gets to the round at the end, the instruments drop out, and it's like multi-part acapella. I had the same reaction that I did when I first heard Don't Worry Baby. And Steve Dahl himself, he was like, oh my God, why didn't the Beach Boys just release it like this? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I need to get this box set just for this i don't care about anything else that's on this box set i just want that it's worth whatever they're asking now it just so happened that my brother had gotten married on memorial day weekend that right before the summer and as my thank you gift for being his best man there was a a 50 dollar mall gift certificate so i took that 50 dollar mall gift certificate and went to music land a Sam Goody-owned store, (laughs) 
and I bought the good vibrations set. And I, because like there were like three, like two or three different versions of God only knows on it. So I was like skipping around looking for that. It's like, Oh my God, I got to hear it. Ah, there it is. There it is. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Now your story about surfs up. I had heard surfs up before, like once or twice. I actually heard it on the radio, believe it or not. Once as part of a, like, like there was a radio show where they were doing a special beach boys focus. So I heard a lot of Holland stuff, actually speaking of Holland in the Chicago area, when I was growing up, I heard Sail on Sailor a lot. And I just didn't know it was the Beach Boys. Because mm-hmm. even when I found out it was the Beach Boys, I didn't believe it because that didn't sound anything like a Beach Boys singing lead. I didn't know about Blondie Chaplin. But I say, oh, oh, cool. Well, yeah, Surf's Up is on here. I want to listen to Surf's Up. I haven't heard that in a while. It's a cool song. So I put in disc three, which contained like late 60s and very early 70s Beach Boys stuff. And I listened to Surf's Up, and I was like, oh my god, this really is a killer tune. And I was sitting, I was just doing stuff on my computer, my beloved Amiga 600. (laughs) And I was too lazy to get up and change the disc or stop it, so I just let it play through to the next track, Till I Die. And I just could not move when I heard it. I I just sat there kind of paralyzed. And this was during a time of day, this was in the summer, mind you. It was a perfectly clear, sunny day, but the sun had started to set, so the lighting was just... It's hard to describe the lighting in an audio podcast, but you could probably imagine. But I'm just sitting there at my computer desk, hearing Till I Die, and I'm thinking, oh my God almighty. When it stopped, I just sat there for a couple of minutes, just unable to do a damn thing. And I had to hear it again, so I cued it back up. And I sat on the floor with my back up against the dresser, just hearing that thing. And I think I listened to it about five times in a row. And thinking, this is the most amazing piece of music ever written. But the thing is, he was able to put those feelings of despair and loneliness and helplessness into a piece of music and Marilyn Wilson was just still you know all those years later still just beside herself that Brian had the ability to do that 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 that's such a rare gift of artistic ability for somebody to be able to do to just be able to capture perfectly how they are feeling and to get and for all we know the fact that Brian could do that may have saved him from actually planning to take his own life. That it yeah. may have, the fact is he was able to get those feelings out in a song. That may have been enough therapy for him to help him through that patch. Yeah. But, um, and of course, what blew my mind was many years later, realizing that he was 27 when he wrote that. Oh, boy. Yeah. He could have been in the 27 Club. Yep, yep. But, I mean, we've seen so many times in Brian's life and in his story that he's been saved for a reason. Yeah. You know, I bought the box set in 1993 as well, but I came upon it a little bit differently than you. Because, first of all, I already knew about some of the smile music thanks to another thing that moved my story along back in the 80s was the documentary Beach Boys and American Band. Oh, man. That was on 
HBO or Showtime about every five minutes back in um, around 1984-85. And it's a very well done documentary that compiled material from a lot of different sources. And the people who made the documentary had a lot of access to material from the Beach Boys vaults and film archives and things like that, including smile material. Yep. Because there was fire. It's a piece of music that can scare the crap out of you. Dead Because I first heard that, I first heard fire in 1993 on a bootleg cassette tape set that was going around. A, f- a very famous one to people who were big fans back then. <laughs> that was the reason I got that that tape set because Good Vibrations did the Good Vibrations box set didn't have fire on it because Brian Wilson didn't yeah. want the world to hear it. He's like, well, no, 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 well, no, no. Also, the story had been for a long time that Brian had burned the tape because, as the urban legend has it, that Brian was taking a lot of LSD in 1966. Which I don't think there's any urban legend about that. I think that's urban truth. That wasn't the urban legend part. (laughs) It was true that he was taking a lot of LSD, which, as has been written about in a lot of places, LSD in initial, like the first couple times that you take LSD and in controlled doses can actually really be a tremendous aid to creativity. And under proper supervision. We have the song California Girls, thanks to lysergic acid. That's very true. So it really was a great thing for Brian, at least initially, because it really pushed along his creativity. But I think in conjunction with his existing mental illness that was not diagnosed or treated yet, I think it started to kind of feed into paranoia and other things that were going on in his head. Oh, yeah. And from what we've heard, there was, at the time that they recorded this this piece of music, there was a string of suspicious fires in Los Angeles, including a building right by their recording studio that burned down. And Brian thought that his music gave off bad vibes. So he intended to destroy the tape. Now, obviously, the tape was not destroyed. Because the, all the tapes <laughs> still exist. And from I've heard from people that it's really hard to burn magnetic tape. Yeah. Like, you need an accelerant or something. I don't think you can just hold a match to it and it's going to burn. And I've, and I've heard from people who actually did some research on this who said... There's no records of any suspicious fires happening yeah. back then. So, because this would have been like November, November. Of 1966. Exactly. So, we don't know if Brian thought he burned the tape and never did, if he tried to burn it, if he had a dream about burning it. Or if he it. was just lying just to get I don't people know. off his back. Because, because Brian definitely has done that over the years. But, obviously, the tape still existed because in Beach Boys American Band, there is a portion of that music yeah the whole thing is on is well yeah pretty much it's it's a short piece yeah so i had heard you know the whole world heard fire through this documentary yep but brian was still dead set on not putting it on like he would not give the approval to put it on anything on anything especially this box set okay fine i didn't know about any of this i went into the record store 
in the mall where I worked at because I was in college at the time and I worked at a clothing store. And I think I may have gone in, I, may, I don't know if it was Musicland or Sam Goody or FYE or any of those goofy mall record stores, but they had this box set right at the front of the store. And I'm like, oh my God, I hadn't heard about it. I didn't know anything about it. And I look at the back of the box set and it had like every song that I ever could have wanted. It had all of the songs that were on that crappy little Pickwick Good Vibrations 8-track, including She Knows Me Too Well, uninterrupted. Yeah. So I was like, basically, took the box up to the register, opened my wallet and said, take my money. <laughs> and again, it took me to another level of fandom because it opened me up to songs that I had never heard before. Oh, yeah. I didn't really know of anything that the Beach Boys did Except for Surf's Up, which is from 1971. I didn't know of any Beach Boys stuff after, like, 1969. Hmm. So that opened up whole new worlds to me. Yeah, yeah, like, disc three of the Good Vibrations box set, that is that was my go-to disc. That was the one I played I mean, over and over and over. There was just so much, and I made many mixtapes to play in the car all different putting all different stuff together putting that good vibrations list on nice high quality sound on a good tape and i mean it was just it was just wonderful yeah yeah, it was wonderful, like, seeing all these songs, and it's like, okay, these, so these songs are from Sunflower. Oh, my God, I got to get that. I'm going to go back to the store and get that Sunflower <laughs> CD I saw. And oh, how did that work for you? I'll tell you how that worked for me. Nobody had it. Nobody had any of those 70s albums on CD that were, Nobody. apparently, they were released by Caribou Records at the time, by the for way. For, like, five seconds. It's like, wait, what? Wait, they were all over before. And I found out they were only in print for a very short short time like literally five seconds probably only five seconds i was like oh you're kidding so let me get this straight the beach boys just put out a box set that has samples songs from all of their albums from 1970 to 1985 but you can't get those actual albums anywhere no. is that right yeah i guess that's the right Beach boys were never have never ever been good at synergy ever ever yeah seriously because and, and not only that, but... So I figured, well, okay, at least I can go back and finish the collection of those Capital Two first CDs. Oh, by the way, the very first one I got was Surfer Girl and Shutdown Volume 2. The reason, I wanted to hear In My Room in German, which I saw was one of the bonus <laughs> oh, tracks. Oh, it's Ganz Allein? Well, it's listed something? as In My Room German yeah. version, but technically it's Ganz Allein, yeah. which means all alone, yeah. by the way. yes. And it was really hearing the album tracks on all of them. I mean, like, wow, I really need to get all these CDs. But, yeah, and it was just maddening because you couldn't get these out. I wanted to hear all of Sunflower. I wanted to hear all of Holland. I was able to get a vinyl copy of Holland, but I wanted it on CD. I was very familiar with 15 Big Ones, so I wasn't in a huge hurry to get that. But not only that, but right around when I'd finally completed my collection of all the Capital 2-on-1 CDs, the Beach Boys yanked those out of production, mm -hmm. too, so you couldn't get those anymore. And like I said before... There well, were there was one place where you could get them. The Record Club. Yeah. My boyfriend, as uh, a couple years later, we're talking like maybe 1996, 95-ish, I was dating a guy who was a tuba player and a music major in college, like a 
an education major, undergrad, performance major in grad school. So he was deeply immersed in a lot of 20th century music, a lot of repertoire for low brass. So he bought CDs. Like if he had a spare dime, he bought he put it towards a CD. And fortunately, classical CDs are pretty cheap compared to others. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. So it was very easy well, for him to acquire CDs. It helps that the material is public domain. And at that time, Columbia House was still around, still pretty active. And Columbia House, even though the little foldouts that you get in TV Guide or whatever that listed, like, you can get these hits from Rush and ACDC and, you know, <laughs> Bruce Springsteen and all this stuff. They didn't really put it in the ads, but they had tons of classical music. So Jim would keep registering for Columbia House memberships using like his brother's name, his aunt's name. (laughs) So he was always getting like, you know, the 20 CDs for one penny and all that. Mm -hmm. So, and he would say to me, he's like, you know, if you want something, let me know. Like, I mean, he wasn't gonna let me use all of his stuff, but he'd give me one or two of his slots for his 20 CDs for a penny. And I took a look and sure enough, they had several of the twofers, including ones that I didn't have yet. So Mm. I was able to get them through, and they were the same as the ones that were in the store. I think they just had like a little thing on it about like Columbia special markets or something like that. And I also found at a CD store, that was on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. I think it was on Amsterdam Avenue. They had some two furs that I think were from, like they were British releases. Same content as the American ones, just the the back cover was a little bit different. Yeah. But it was the same content. So I was able to track down some two furs even though they weren't in print any longer. And one thing I gotta say too about buying music in the 90s like in the early to mid 90s that was kind of a a low period i think for buying music and i don't know if this was your experience but it was pretty hard to find anything used and a lot of stuff that was older or off the beaten path either wasn't available on cd or nobody carried it And you didn't have the internet yet, so it wasn't like you could look stuff up and find things that were harder to find and go into a record store and say, hey, this exists, can you order it for me? Like, I think music, during that time, it was very limited and very corporate. And I just found it to be, a it was a really hard time. Like, you had to really find a store like Jackson Red Bank, New Jersey, where they they would go off the beaten path for you yep. and they would track down stuff and they like to carry in their stores things that were harder to find. That's where I got Wonderman's second album which was only released in Japan. Yeah. So <laughs> it it's kind of funny when you think about what was to come on the horizon that when the internet yeah. plus iTunes Yep. I mean, these record store people who thought they had a grip on everybody, they were in for a rude awakening. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was a maddening time because you know, going back to what I was saying, like 
you had the Capitol two for CDs, which had two complete albums plus bonus tracks and a lovely and booklet, a, a extensive liner notes. They yep. had, it had every, the exception was Stack of Tracks, which the original 1969 release of Stack of Tracks it had chord charts, lyrics, and things so you could play along and learn how to play the songs. They didn't include that in the twofer because they wrote, well, we figured it was too small to reproduce, so we left that out. But 1994 happens, and those twofers are gone now and replaced with one album per CD, no Mm -hmm. bonus tracks, no No liner notes, the exception being Stack of Tracks, which they actually did include the stuff they didn't include Mm -hmm. before. But that's it. But that was... uh, So you couldn't get the original twofers for a while. You couldn't get... The albums for between 1970 and 1985. And it was years. It was years. A 2000, 2000 finally, they reissued the 1970 through 1985 albums. And two on one, but with no extra material, except for the Beach Boys in concert. There's a little bit of more in-between song chatter on that one, which I think was really cool. Because there are certain things you hear in context. Like the original in concert album from 1973 you hear these like random guitar notes in the beginning of funky pretty on the 2000 reissue you hear more of that and you hear what the context was somebody was tuning the guitar Hmm. so that's what that was like oh but so then we finally were able to get uh, and it it, well actually we're able to get all the stuff from sunflower 1970 to their self-titled 1985 album and the following year, Capitol put out those two for CDs again. Mm-hmm. Uh, remastered, although the one that I, the, I tried one of the remastered ones and it sounded like total garbage. So I was like, I'm well, not getting the rest. Going back to the mid-90s, kind of, and this is, I think, kind of the final, the final stage probably for both of us in terms of coming up to real, crazy, hardcore fandom and... Kind of finding all the things you wanted to find. I disagree, but finish but finish your thought. Why do you disagree? Because the box set, the Good Vibrations box set, okay. was the one that cemented okay, it for me. Okay, but there's, there's one more step, and that was the Usenet groups, the internet... You know, which we both okay. came, which we both came onto in different ways at different times. I mean, I came onto Usenet in 1995. I was working for AT and T as a technical writer, and at the time, my computer had a browser, internet browser. It had Netscape. Remember Netscape? And I had like an actual browser where I could go to, you know, HTTP, www, blah blah blah, but. That was still kind of a new thing for us and for our work. Even like using Microsoft Word for documentation was still pretty new. A lot of our work was still in the Telnet world, the you know where you connect directly with other systems, other computers yeah. through IP addresses. Like a lot of our documentation was still done with through Unix and the VI editor, which was developed oh, yes. by Bell Labs. So where it's like you are just looking at characters on a screen and you almost have to be able to picture in your head what the text is going to look like on a page because you're not going to know until you actually print it out. It was a great program because it did exactly what you wanted it to do, but you had to have a lot of imagination in order to know what it was going to look like. So something I had found out about was that through a Telnet session, I could go to 
something called news groups, Usenet news groups, which were just, again, just text on a screen, but it was groups that were all different titles, different addresses to get there. And, you know, just discussion, like you could just type a post to a group and everybody could read it and they could reply to you and you could reply to them and whatever. I had first heard about it either, I think I was reading an article in Entertainment Weekly and it mentioned that there was a group called Alt TV Seinfeld. Now being somebody from the New York area, I was crazy about Seinfeld. So it's like, oh, I could go to this group and we could all talk about Seinfeld. And there was also a group for the show ER, which had just started and I totally loved. So I started looking into these groups and started noodling around finding groups, other groups for interests that I had. Like I found out about Rec Music Beatles, (laughs) which was... Despite there was which, a great news group for a while. But then it became a horrible place it because everybody awful. fought Ugh. constantly. It was like you picture a room just full of broken furniture and like dirty words scrawled on walls. Oh, it was awful. you, Merrick. <laughs> but I don't even know who Merrick was, but everybody hated him. Yep. And then I found rec music artists, Beach Boys... And alt music Beach Boys. And I am not going into why there were two groups. Let's not just, we're not going down that rabbit hole today. But there were two groups with ongoing discussion about the Beach Boys. And the way I kind of like to picture when I found these groups, it's like, you know, in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, when Richard Dreyfuss's character starts crafting like a little mountain first out of mashed potatoes and then he starts just ripping out all the plants and the dirt from his garden and throwing it into his living room and on the ping pong table he makes this giant model of this flat top mountain devil's tower well he didn't know that oh okay and then but he had no idea why and then he runs into uh, Jillian, you know, he was Roy Neary, runs into Jillian, whose little boy got taken away by the UFO. And she had been making drawings and paintings of the exact same structure. And she didn't know why. They leave together and head out west. And they find that it's actually, it's a real thing. It's Devil's Tower. It's a national monument. It's this weird flat top mountain. And it was where they were going to have the aliens they had set up a place to welcome the aliens and have them land there and they go there and there's all these other people Mm -hmm. who were drawn to the same place and it was like oh my god i'm not crazy it's not just me there are other people who understand and that's what it was like finding these groups that had people from all over the world all different walks of life all different ages all talking about this music that had been a part of me since I was two and a half years old. And And just think about this. At the time, here I am from Joliet, Illinois. There you are from the Jersey Shore. And now one of those people from those groups is now literally our neighbor in the same freaking neighborhood in Chicago. from the group. He lives like two blocks away from us. We walk past his house almost every day. (laughs) Yeah, we just saw him the other night. That's right. We were walking the dog. He was driving home. But there are also people that we have been talking to for several decades now. We have never met these people in person, 
but yet we still have so much shared history through different conversations yeah. and arguments and and I mean I found out that there's music I had no idea about there's books that I had never heard of and memorabilia and other stories and yeah. people who had personally met the Beach Boys in different situations and different capacities and their stories and you know now that we had I mean, kind of over the next couple of years, as the internet grew, you could go into, I mean, even before there was Amazon, like Barnes and Noble had a massive web presence. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you could go in there and search for books that were out of print and hard to yep. find, and maybe they could find you a copy that wasn't a thousand dollars. Yeah. And of course, the convergence of all these people on these various internet, like Usenet news groups and internet mailing list based forums, we were all finding the same thing. We couldn't freaking find a CD of Sunflower. We didn't finish our two for collections before they went out of print. So we were helping each other out with that. Yeah. I even put together a want list where people mm -hmm. would, I'd say, okay, everybody, if you're looking for something, let me know. We'll publish this list. So if anybody finds it, they'll reach out to you. Yeah. So people would go to like Walgreens and stuff and look through the cutout yeah. bins and like, like oh, oh my God, here's a copy of Holland on CD yeah. for four bucks. Cause this was Someone's going to want this. Cause this was also even before eBay. Yep. So as these different internet resources became available, it's like, oh, now we have this thing called eBay that makes it even easier to find stuff. And then now there's Amazon that has an even larger resource of used and out of print material. Yep. And also, I think the internet also just encouraged more people to do things like write books and make documentaries. Yep. And so there was more and more material out there and even for a time i know they got kind of scared away but sometimes even people who were in the inner circle or used to be in the inner circle or were close to the inner circle were participating in various forums some of them still do like mark lennett their, their current mm -hmm. like engineer guy he is yeah pretty active and hey van dyke parks just liked a tweet of yours didn't that's he? right he did <laughs> but it just opened up a tremendous world of opportunity yep. to be able to find everything that you had ever wanted to know or hear or see. And some of it was kind of icky and disturbing, like that picture of Brian Wilson sitting in a hotel chair, like buck naked except for a hat yeah 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 i and i will put a link to that in the in the online bibliography I mean, fortunately you can't see any naughty bits, yeah 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 but you definitely know that he is nude yep yep <laughs> and i good really Lord. really really don't know why and it's not from one this. of his good eras too it was like when he was it was during one of his worst times <laughs> i mean i don't really know why we have access to that picture no but. because somebody was selling the original picture oh, on okay. ebay so they grabbed a, a screen grab of the oh, uh, okay <laughs> and shared it but yeah you have all that you had all that going on and it, it just makes me like realize man for years probably about a good seven years we diehard fans felt like we were being like smacked around like we were teased with all these plans for new releases that never happened 
And we're like, God, it really sucks to be a fan right now. But over the years, especially with, say, iTunes and things, we've been blessed with a lot of stuff. We have all kinds of archival material now. And thanks to that weird copyright law in Europe, we we get, like, copyright extension archival sets Mm -hmm. every year. Yep. So it's like, man, if we knew in 1994 what we were going to be reaping. Yeah, just thinking about the first couple years that I was on those news groups and then... And then eventually migrated to... Um, Marriage. Well, yeah. But the Pet Sounds mailing list, which um, I don't even know if people really do mailing lists anymore. But the SML still exists. It's still, it's well, still yeah, somewhat but, active. But it's like mailing lists, for those who don't know, was basically still a discussion forum, but it was all done over email. You know, if you subscribe to Pet Sounds mailing list, you would get emails anytime anybody posted to the group you get an email where the subject line started with you know brackets psml and then the subject line and you would reply to it just like you would reply to an email and either to that person directly or to the entire group and if you didn't want your mailbox choked up with tons of emails you could also get what was called the digest where every so many days you would get one email that had all the posts in it from the past X number of days. And of course, people who didn't know how to use like proper netiquette, they'd reply to it and leave the entire yeah. digest <laughs> quoted in the email without trimming anything. But it's... Uh, it's freaking maddening. But it, you know, those first couple of years when we all talked about the things that we wanted, we've gotten almost everything yep. that we talked about. You know, we got Brian Wilson touring as a solo artist. He finished Smile... He's put out several other albums of original material. He did an album of George Gershwin covers that was done by the request of the Gershwin estate. Mm-hmm. Um, he did an album of Disney covers. It's a damn shame that that thing came out a week before the Beach Boys Smile Sessions know, box right? set came out. Cause it got he, buried. <laughs> it got buried, but I'll tell you, it's got some of his best vocals and, on that, al- on that Disney I mean, album. he... I never put a lot of stock in the recording academy and you know I never really cared much about people winning Grammys but I know from things I heard over the years that it was important to Brian and he won he's won several Grammys and it was all for several Well okay he won for a smile for his smile album he won one for himself for Best instrumental. For Mrs. O'Leary's Cow. Which was the the new name for the fire music that he was freaked out by. Yeah, because he could register it under his own name. It's not even... uh, the, The copyright registration is not as a Beach Boys piece because it was never registered back in the 60s. Yeah, it was never released. It was never published. Oh, that's right. He, for the other Grammy for Smile, he... He was nominated but didn't win. He was nominated yeah. for like best. Or, or th- yeah, I think he got three nominations. One was for best for album of the year, uh-huh. which he lost to Genius Loves Company, which was the Dead Guy Sympathy Award. Tony Cash. No, that would no that no Ray Tony? Charles. Oh okay. Ray, yeah, because yeah. Ray Charles had just he died, had, so like we have yep, to award it exactly. to him. And there was also um, it also lost best engineered, okay. which I'll tell you I don't I see nothing wrong with that because there is an engineering mistake at the very beginning of the album. But the fact is Brian won a Grammy that's all his own, 
And just seeing that picture, the press photo of him holding it up next to his face, it's like, man, this is something he always wanted, and you gotta love that. Yep. But then the Smile Box won, I think, Best Archival. It, it won some kind of Grammy. It won at least one. It may have won two. Oh, by the way, here's a little sample of a song that was on that Grammy Award-winning no. collection. <laughs> When I went down, my baby went up. Isn't that Grammy worthy? Good Lord. It's just, I mean, Brian got to perform for the Queen. He was, I think, the only American artist that was part of Queen Elizabeth's Jubilee concert for her 75th year as the monarch. 50th. And, oh, I was fifth. Okay, 50th. I mean, the, you know, you had Ozzy Osbourne and Paul McCartney and all these other great British people, but I think Brian was the only... I think he, I think he was the only American, I think wasn't he was. He? Yeah. And, of course, what's the great story when he... When they, they're briefing everybody <laughs> on how to, how to deal with the queen and don't call her queen, call her your, my, your majesty, your royal highness, so Brian whatever. Brian goes up and he says, hi, queen. <laughs> and what was her reaction? The same reaction she gave everybody else. She smiled politely and shook his hand. She she knows. <laughs> She's cool. But but the fact is, like, I mean, that's just kind of the happy ending of kind of this building in a fan community that just finding finding the community, finding the like-minded people, and just having so much to enjoy. Mm -hmm. So in summary, um, you got into the Beach Boys because of Endless Summer, and I got into the Beach Boys because of Don't Worry Baby. And then we got married. And then we got married, yay. Because of the Beach Boys. Yay. And I got to tell Brian and Melinda Wilson about it. Yay. Isn't that cute? Yep. We're so disgusting. Yeah, we are. So let's put an end to it. End to it. That's not a Beach Boys thing. I know. Well, there you have it, how Lisa and I became fans, when we became fans, and how we kind of evolved in that, oh, I don't want to say journey, because everybody says journey, and it's all touchy-feely and everything. No, screw it. Journey. There. And before we start getting emails and uh, notes on Facebook and things, yes, I know, Surf's Up was released as a single with Don't Go Near the Water as the B-side. Also, there was kind of an implication of the Good Vibrations box set, which came out in August of 93, was a belated 30th anniversary box. Well, I know, I have heard since that apparently that box set was put out as a 30th anniversary marker for Surfing USA, which still doesn't really make sense because Surfing USA was released in March 1963. It peaked at number three in May. So they were still late, if you're going by that logic. So, there. But anyway, thank you all for listening, and uh, you'll be hearing from us again uh, pretty soon, I think. Thank you for listening to the Tune X Podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or iTunes. You can hear us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and just about every other provider out there. If Tune X isn't on your favorite provider, please let us know. 
You can email us at tunexpodcast at gmail.com. Our website, which includes the show notes, is tunex.fab4it.com. Fab4IT is spelled F-A-B, then the number four, then I-T. Feel free to connect with us on social media. TuneX is on Facebook, and we're also on Instagram and Twitter, both under the handle of TuneX Podcast. Our opening and closing theme, Melody 10, was written and performed by Scattered Frog. All other music and sounds used in this episode remain the properties of their respective copyright holders and are used for the purposes of commentary and review. No infringement is intended. We'll see you next time, friends. Until then, don't don't back back down down from from that that wave. wave.